Welcome back to Foresight, the CPA podcast. I'm your host, David McGuffin. When Rachel Kirkham completed her exams and received her designation as a professional accountant in the UK, it wasn't obvious she'd end up leading and, in fact, designing massive AI projects. I'm not sure I, I quite had appreciated I'd end up joining like a software company and kind of building AI software, but, uh, you know, uh, that's the way it's gone. In fact, the first step she took after receiving the designation was not into a tech startup or anything techie at all, really. Her first job was in the mother of all audit offices, the National Audit Office, the UK equivalent of the Federal Auditor General. Rachel was auditing the National Tax Authority. And as you can imagine, they have a lot of data. The UK collects on average £650 billion in tax revenue every year. And the information for this was spread over 200 separate IT systems. The task was enormous. And it was at that moment, as she looked at the incredible mass of data and wondered how she was going to sift through it all, that she thought she needed some new skills. I thought, I really need to learn to program. So um, that's when I, I started teaching myself to program, actually. And so that's what she did. Rachel learned to program and to apply machine learning to enormous data sets of financial information. And this is where her journey from a recent accounting graduate to the vice president of analytics and data science for MindBridge became a little more obvious. MindBridge is a software company that uses complex AI to audit complex financial data. It's AI for accountants. Rachel has been at the center of developing the tremendous opportunities that AI brings to accounting. But she's also had to navigate its potential ethical pitfalls. Laura and Brian Friedrich call this narrow wedge between the promise and the perils of technology the double-edged sword. We'll speak to Laura and Brian later in this episode, but first, let's return to Rachel. We'll pick up her story at the first time she used AI in her role as an auditor. Funnily enough, like <laughs> the first real machine learning I remember using isn't wasn't for a financial audit. It was for a performance audit, so a value for money mm. audit. And we were trying to synthesize large volumes of text into something that was actually usable for uh, a study. We were using natural language processing to pass that text and then build topic models on top of it, identifying the key themes within the data. Seeing you can also apply sentiment analysis once you've done some of that pre-processing. So looking at, you know, how positive or negative people's opinions were of um, particular government services. So that was super interesting. And, you know, text isn't always the kind of data people think of when they, they do an audit, but it's um, actually really valuable. So that was the first, like, you know, real machine learning project I can point to. Was there, I'm just wondering if there's a particular like aha moment, like, wow, this is really powerful, this AI. I think when we started to look at automating something that takes a really substantial amount of time, you know, often on an audit, you're probably doing 100 to 500 samples, maybe more, depends on the size of the audit and kind of mm -hmm. the levels of risk, right? Being able to demonstrate you could use that technology to perform what lots of junior auditors were doing, possibly quite inaccurately if they're like mm -hmm. first year trainees. I think that was really an aha moment for me. And when I was looking for kind of new opportunities, MindBridge was like a super obvious from my perspective 
because, mm-hmm. you know, we'd done a, a proof of concept with them. And, you know, meeting people like Robin, who's our chief technology officer, really mm-hmm. reinforced to me that, like, you know, technologists were thinking about audit in a very different way. And I wanted to be a part of that. So that's why I joined MindBridge. And, you know, looking at kind of the projects that we do here, you know, there's a really interesting set of machine learning algorithms that can be really powerful, actually, in identifying unusual behavior within data. Yeah. I mean, just talking about that power, I'm wondering also if there's been like an uh-oh moment as well, like, whoa, this is really powerful. How do we, you know, manage this power? Yeah. Yeah. So um, when you're training a machine learning algorithm, maybe, you know, to credit score someone in order to, you know, decide whether you're going to give them a loan, right? Mm-hmm. Like what characteristics of that person do you include into the machine learning model? You know, how do you mm-hmm. make sure that you're not simply replicating the bias that already exists within the system by feeding it in data that already contains that bias, right? So there's like a bunch of considerations you have to take when you're developing those models such that you don't end up replicating the systemic bias that already exists in society. You know, and I think a lot of people are aware of this. There's certainly a greater awareness than there was even five years ago of of some of these subjects. You know, I I have quite strong opinions around facial recognition and, you know, the lack of diversity in data science being something that needs to be addressed in order to make sure that these technologies serve everyone and not just a few people. You know, I think that the broader societal impact of AI is still to be determined and there does need to be concerted efforts across the technology industry to make sure we address those. Can you program against bias? Is that something you can actually So there there are ways you can pre-process the data essentially to minimize bias in that data set. Yeah, so there are specific approaches you can take. You also, you know, uh, the feature selection, so which characteristics of the data you feed into the algorithm, that itself, you know, can help to mitigate against some bias. But sometimes it's not just the explicit characteristics that are protected by the law that you need to consider. Sometimes some of those characteristics are actually implicitly included in other kinds of data about that, say, person, for example. So there are a bunch of different things that you have to think about and the techniques to mitigate against these biases are improving all the time. Yeah, so I think yeah. there's there are things you can do, but it's about being aware of them as a data scientist, I think. That, right. and, and also, if you're managing people that are building these models, it's having mm. an, you know, an awareness that this is something you actually need to explicitly consider and, and manage as a risk right so it comes back to risk management and kind of as an auditor (laughs) obviously risk management is close to my heart so i I think you know um we are all uh, there is lots of evidence about the potential harm of improper use of this technology so Mm -hmm. it's now is the time for people to put appropriate frameworks in place to manage this from a corporate risk perspective as well as you know a regulatory perspective yeah in terms of face recognition software, you mentioned concerns and sort of benefiting the few against the many. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So I think uh, so. there's a, some classic kind of case studies in facial recognition um, algorithms being unable to, you know, accurately identify ethnic minorities because the training data sets that they've used have, you know, predominantly included Caucasian faces in their training. And mm. I think And to be honest with you, it's not just, you know, ethnicity. I think they still struggle sometimes with women versus men, for example. Right. And, you know, it's um, 
it's something which actually from a kind of if you were to stand back and look at it perspective like uh, the way that algorithms work it's predicated on the data that you put into the algorithm right so mm -hmm. if you're not giving it a, a balanced data set then it's not going to have a balanced result <laughs> so it's mm -hmm. actually something that's really quite obvious but if you have people that maybe don't you know you don't have a diverse team working on that project they just might not spot it, right? It's not even necessarily malicious. It's just mm -hmm. that they haven't noticed that actually the data set they're using for training purposes is potentially biased, right? So there are strategies you can take to mitigate against these risks, but you need to have people thinking about it, right? Mm -hmm. In order to be taking those steps in the first place. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. It really is. I mean, you talked a bit about what you're doing with AI at MindBridge. I'm just wondering if you can elaborate on projects that you're really excited about or have been working on. Yeah, yeah, sure. So if you think about audit as a way to provide trust in a system, right? So financial mm -hmm. reporting is used for a couple of different things, but it is primarily there for, you know, shareholders and in the case of obviously government financial statements are there to reassure certainly parliament, but also the taxpayers that their money's being spent appropriately. You know, audit's there to increase trust in those processes, right? And to give you mm -hmm. comfort around the numbers. From that perspective, being able to provide a higher quality, more insightful audit, for me just seems like a number one priority, right? Like I think because of the cost pressures in the audit market, particularly because there's been a massive increase in the amount of data that enterprises are producing, it's very mm -hmm. hard to be able to look at all the transactions based on traditional audit approaches, but you can with algorithms and data analytics. So for me, it's something I'm quite passionate about, to be honest with you, like, you know, firms should be using these techniques to improve the quality of their audit and making sure that, you know, they're really looking at the things that are genuinely high risk. Um, so we use a range of anomaly detection techniques to say, okay, this, it, based on the data you've uploaded into our system, this is the most unusual thing, right? And say you're looking at the interaction between account codes. So we can identify what the rarest occurrences are, right? And it, those are probably, you know, they might be error correction journals. They might be mm -hmm. a journal you only post once a year, right? But nevertheless, <laughs> they're still potentially the things that you want to spend some time looking at. I would say. And mm -hmm. we're in the midst, we're in the kind of middle of a project where we're expanding the range of different data sets we can bring into the product. So we've done a lot of work on the general ledger, but actually in audit, there are loads of other data sets that you collect. Payroll analytics come to mind. Um, at my previous time, we did a lot of work on purchase to pay. So that's a, a business process. We were really looking at kind of through a matching and understanding, is there a regular expenditure in that data set? You know, have things been approved via a purchase order? Have you received all the goods, that kind of thing. But, you know, being able to do those analytics and actually say everything has been through a 3 match, so it's gone through the process correctly. And these are, you know, the 20 most anomalous items in your entire data set. And then go and evidence those, right? You're actually getting a lot more assurance through doing that process through analytics rather than maybe just doing a random sample on your invoice listing, right? And right, you have no right. idea, right, whether you're targeting the right ones. So I guess I think for me, it's all about like improving, mm. improving audit quality, but then also increasing the trust in those financial statements, right? Through being able to do a better mm. audit. So you, so you've actually audited algorithms, right? And I'm just wondering what that involves. 
Well, so I have actually done that. In the UK, University College London have a really good computer science department, but they'd also actually been publishing quite a bit on the auditing of algorithms. Mm -hmm. So we got them in to apply their framework and audit our algorithms. So we took a glass box approach, which is where we give them access to all of our algorithms with task data. And they spent mm -hmm. a lot of time testing the algorithms themselves. Yeah. They created their own test data. And so they were able to verify that, you know, how we describe the algorithms to non-technical users was actually how they operated. So that was a, you know, really great outcome. It was probably the first time a software provider has actually been through an algorithm audit certainly in the um, audit market um, for software, you know, and it's something we will continue to do on an annual basis, much like yeah. we do our SOC 2 type 2 and our um, ISO 27001 reports, yeah. because it's part of our kind of con control framework. Um, so I think that should give a lot of comfort to firms that are using us, especially mm -hmm. with reference to the new standards. But actually, when I was at the NAO, I also did do some audit of algorithms mm. as well right so it's definitely yeah. an emerging field and i was working yeah. with some colleagues in in europe on the framework for the the audit of algorithms so mm -hmm. you know there are a couple of different approaches out there mm -hmm. and in the uk the information commissioner's office is going to be publishing an auditing framework actually so mm -hmm. there's a lot of discussion about it here yeah. in the uk yeah. and that first uh, audit you yeah. mentioned the outside audit were there any surprises that came out of that not really. I think it was very helpful from a kind of having a third party look at our documentation and look at our algorithms. And, you know, they had some like pointers about things we needed to update for some of our customer documentation. You know, that was good. That was a good outcome. Yeah. I think I was surprised actually how robust the audit was. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I don't know why yeah. that should surprise me, but they really did do a lot of testing, Good. you know, yeah. and they gave me a lot of their kind of example data. So, yeah, so I, I think that was, you know, yeah. reasonably challenging. Yeah. Definitely. You were happy wrapping. with the outcome, clearly, though. I was, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So in terms of sort of balancing opportunity versus risk, what do you think uh, chartered accountants need to think about to navigate that risk? I think for me, the biggest risk in the use of technology, you know, AI maybe specifically, is people trusting the results without really thinking about the inputs, right? Mm -hmm. So you, I, I often see people blindly applying, you know, a color that's been applied to a particular transaction and being like, okay, that's fine. What we, we will do this or we won't do this, but there's no critical thinking about like, what does that mm. actually mean? And yeah. so I guess for me, that's the biggest risk, right? Is that people take analytical approaches, but they're not then applying critical thinking to the results. And so one of the advantages of using these technologies is that you can standardize your approach to audit to a, a significant mm -hmm. degree. Mm -hmm. because it's repeatable and you just need to put the right data in it and you know it will run all of the analytics for you you know that's a great thing uh, to be able to do but then you don't have the auditor performing all of those calculations right mm -hmm. so they they have to actually still think about okay yeah i've put this data in is the data of sufficient quality people don't necessarily always do that even, right? Like I actually see a lack of critical thinking about have I done IT general controls testing? Like have I mm. considered like the provenance of this system generated report? Like, is it complete? You know, that these are like some, some some critical things you have to do in order anyway. And I think people forget about them. But the more that you use analytics to automate a fairly significant chunk of order, the more that these become 
like crucial, right? Because this is the mm-hmm. source of your audit evidence. So you know, you better be sure that the report that's been run is, you know, pulling everything from the data set, right? So yeah, so that's that, that for me, that's a bit of a risk. And I, I say I've seen that quite a bit, right? And I'm like, why IT audit work do you do? Yeah. I mean a lot of what you described and a lot of your work that you've described involves heavy amount of tech, obviously, in programming. And I'm just wondering, you're also obviously a chartered accountant and how important those CA skills came to play in doing what you're doing. Yeah. So I think from my background, there's a couple of different aspects, right? So the construction of transactions is obviously double entry bookkeeping. So that's fundamental. So Mm -hmm. I do see people, I still see people struggle with like the fundamentals of accounting, especially my data scientists who aren't accountants, you know, they've Mm -hmm. got a bunch of accountancy training. And I think sometimes like the conceptual, you know, underpinnings of the data that we're looking at, it takes them a little while to get hold of. So I think that's important. But also, and maybe this is because of the nature of the audit work that I was doing, but we often Mm -hmm. took systems-based views. So um, I did do a bit of IT audit training as well. And so I think... Having that background and understanding how these IT systems actually fit together to produce financial information, that's Mm -hmm. been pretty foundational in doing kind of the rest of the work that I've done. Yeah, interesting. Listen, this has been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. And you've been very generous with your time. No worries, David. Rachel Kirkham is the Vice President of Analytics and Data Science for MindBridge. And as you heard, she's also a professional accountant. Now, I mentioned at the beginning that Laura and Brian Friedrich have been thinking a lot about the cost-benefit balance of AI. They wrote a report for CPA Canada called Technology is a Double-Edged Sword with Both Opportunities and Challenges for the Accountancy Profession. They are friends of the podcast, and it's really great to have them both back. Laura and Brian, welcome. Thanks for having us back. Thank you so much. Uh, So, Laura, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, Rachel really laid out the potential benefits and challenges with AI in her work. And I'm just wondering what you heard in there that really caught your ear. One of the things that really stood out for me was that when she was speaking, she spoke about that opportunity side, not just as an opportunity per se, but really a necessity. Uh, She was talking about the fact that as organizations generate larger and larger amounts of data, the ability for us to audit using traditional methods, well, that's, that's just gone now. Traditional auditing is not going to work with those massive data sets. And the same thing is true when we're speaking about professional accountants who are working in organizations. The larger and larger those data data sets get that we're trying to manage, the more difficult it is for us to use some of those older methods of dealing with that data. And we really do need to embrace and and harness and leverage the power of transformational or disruptive technologies in order to be able to continue to add value going forward. Laura, you mentioned the necessity of this. I'm just wondering what what are the opportunities that you heard coming out of that conversation? Well, I think that in terms of those opportunities, she was speaking quite a bit about, as professional accountants, as CPAs, we don't have all of the technology skill sets, you know, from our, our traditional training necessarily. But what really counts is some of the core skills that we do have, some of that systems thinking, um, the critical thinking, that professional skepticism, or in an international context, we'd refer to it as, you know, having an inquiring mind. And that piece, being able to work with experts who are sometimes very focused on, you know, what they're doing and the progress that they're making. But then to kind of bring that Mm -hmm. bigger picture out and say, okay, we're needing to look at this and like, let's take a step back. Let's make sure that we're asking the right questions here. And that piece of it is something that is so fundamentally important 
when we look at it from the opportunity side. Interesting. And Brian, what jumped out as you as the risks that most concern you? Probably a key risk being bias and, and mitigating bias in the systems that are out there. And I think we would agree that the biggest risk from, uh, from transformational technologies is that people have a tendency to, to trust the outputs without really being critical about the inputs. So again, risk identification, critical mm -hmm. thinking, looking at how outputs are driven by the inputs in systems and that, that systems thinking philosophy. And that's something that CPAs are very well versed in. Understanding that the fundamental underpinnings of transactions is an important piece of this. And clearly, we're also trained to be skeptical and to have an, an inquiring mind in the language of the international context. And then if I think about the audit context, Rachel highlighted the need there to ensure that we don't lose sight of audit fundamentals mm -hmm. and IT general controls testing and that sort of thing is especially important when you think about the standards around audit quality and, and so on and as those change. Yeah. So, I mean, so Laura, I mean, how do CPAs effectively navigate then between the risks and benefits? Yeah, that's uh, that's the ongoing challenge, isn't it, for all of us in terms of right. really, you know, harnessing these opportunities. We need to be aware of the fact that, as Brian was saying, we need to be aware of the risk of bias and ask those right questions. Mm. So right. not trying to put brakes on, but rather recognizing that these systems need guardrails, they need oversight. And as CPAs, we can offer that oversight. We can naturally, we're trained again to have that critical thinking and to be skeptical and to ask the questions and to be a little bit conservative on, in our approach to risk management to say, mm -hmm let's make sure we're doing this right and getting the right balance from that perspective. How optimistic are you that we're going to be able to navigate this correctly? Or is there too much forward momentum, too much speed moving forward? It's a difficult question, I'm going to say. And the reason is it sounds like a pretty simple question in terms of the optimism, except that it's a very complex question because any response has to be blended within the social context of what's happening in the world generally and the mis and disinformation and the different political agendas that are moving things in certain directions. So there's certain actors make use of some of these very transformative and, and disruptive technologies for their own agendas. And so that that's where my caution comes in because these technologies from everything that we've seen are moving largely at an exponential rate. And the human brain is very good at working in a linear mm -hmm. fashion, sort of a proportional rate, but exponential becomes more difficult. And so we really need to be making use of some of these technologies to serve as the controls for the technologies that we are looking to have oversight over because we simply can't think as fast. We don't have the same sorts of resources mm -hmm. or the same compute that these systems have. And so as CPAs, I think we need to be very creative about making use of the technology to both add value and, and to exploit the fantastic opportunities that are available through this, but also from the safeguard perspective mm -hmm. to ensure that the tech is being used in the right way for the right purposes. And always remembering your public interest mandate, that's what has to be held above mm -hmm. all else. Certainly the legitimate interests of your clients, of your employer and so on. But when things start to look like they're crossing the line or if there's a risk of them crossing the line, that mm -hmm. you're able to stand back and ask the important questions about what's this tech really going to be doing? And does, does it seem appropriate for us to mm -hmm. do that? Has there been enough testing? Those sorts of things. 
Fantastic. Well, as ever, it's uh, always a fascinating conversation when you two are involved. So thanks you so much for coming back on the podcast again. Thanks for having us. Really, really appreciate it, David. And that's it for this episode of Foresight. Foresight, the CPA podcast, is produced by Podcraft Productions. And please rate, review, and share this episode. It helps others to find the podcast. I'm David McGuffin. I'll be back with our next episode in two weeks' time. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Please note the views expressed by our guests are theirs alone, not necessarily the views of CPA Canada.